Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, I know you've been using the company credit card to pay for your hooers. Mm, all right. You know, it's always interesting what kind of weird, random aspect of a movie you will focus on to introduce yourself there. It's quite exciting. That's I want the audience not the to one know. I would have expected. But uh, I would rather you use your personal stash mm-hmm. instead of the uh, awesome movie, your corporate card. Oh, do we have that? I'm all for you getting hoarse. You know, whatever. Sex workers, I support them. Okay. I support your usage of them in a transactional type setting. But don't use the corporate card, Josh. All right. So anyway, in this uh, season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1999. And we are here at the Academy Award winner for Best Picture. Somehow, it is American Beauty. This is a this. I mean, even after watching this, like and I don't dislike this movie. I'm just like, this is going to be a load for us to uh, to unpack here. So, yeah, it's. You know, even it, regardless of whether you like this movie now or not, it, it's so crazy looking back and thinking this one eight or nominated for eight Oscars. This one best picture. It won five Oscars. It made so much money like this movie. Yeah. 14 BAFTAs. Yeah. You know? It's 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 oh, astonishing nominations. Yeah. And uh, I know you're going to get into it, but we had already covered, um, you know, Sixth Sense, which was one of the other ones. Uh, for best picture, Green Mile, meh. You know, this yeah. was not a really strong year for such a good movie year. This is not a strong year for the Oscars. I they say. just they nominated the wrong things. Maybe I think you're right. The two that I, I mean, Cider House Rules, I think is a better movie than this. The best one nominated was The Insider. That movie's great. That is true. I would agree with you there. That's far and away the best one. And I think mm-hmm. of those, maybe that's the one that people remember now. I mean, I, I, I when I was researching this and I saw that. I was like, I forgot that the Cider House rules even existed. Good morning, you princes of New England, you kings of whatever. It's, I don't good, it's good night. I think it's how yeah, he, he says good night to the orphans. Kings of Maine, Massachusetts. Yeah, I think it's like Maine, that. princes of Maine and something kings like that. Kings of New England. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, it's uh, anyway, this movie. <laughs> That's is not Ameri- what we're talking no, about. No, <laughs> it's not. This is American Beauty. So, right. So this movie, in addition to being nominated for all those awards, eight Oscars, uh best reviewed movie of the year and it made 356.3 million dollars at the box office on its budget of 15 million and a movie like this doesn't make that kind of money anymore no and what's interesting is you know alan ball the writer um wrote this as a spec to get out of his tv work because he was writing like sybil episodes of sybil sybil is underrated (laughs) I, I loved Sybil when it was airing. Wow. Seriously. I like Sybil Shepherd. I mean, yeah. you know, last Christine uh, Baranski, that was like her breakout great. role. Yeah. Alicia Witt, also her breakout role. But that's a good, that's a good trio. Was, I'd like to see them all the day on a show. Yeah, it was a good show. Well, I enjoyed it. Alan Ball did not like <laughs> yeah. it, Josh. He did not want to write Sybil Shepherd, Sybil. I think, is difficult to work with. Yeah. yeah. But she's great in Last Picture Show. Yes. Um, anyway, so he wrote this as a spec script, not ever thinking it would get sold, but like more of like a calling card for like, hey, I can write movies. And, uh, and then here we are, Josh, 22 years later. Here we are indeed. Uh, and, and there he was winning awards. He won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, this also won Best Picture. It won Best Director for Sam Mendes. 
won Best Actor for Kevin Spacey and Best Cinematography for Conrad Hall, was also nominated for Best Original Score, Best Editing, and Best Actress for Annette Bening, but those they did not win. Yeah, and I just want to say, I mean, well, you know, two of those, I think you could argue they should have won. That they, Thomas Newman's score was great, right? I, you know, we can get into that later, but one thing watching this movie this time is I found the music incredibly annoying. Okay, and, I, and we should get into that. And also, like, Annette Benning is wonderful in everything. She, she is, is a great. great actress. She is a great actress, and I feel like her work has held up better than Kevin Spacey's, not just on a personal behavior level. Well, I'm not. I'm going to disagree with you. I think, as a, from an acting standpoint, he was one of the the really good leading men that was out there, and I think his acting is always interesting. Uh, you know, the personal stuff. I don't support it. <laughs> right, right. No, and that's good. I'm glad that you've come out against that. Yeah. Um, uh, do you, do you, do you guys do you guys want to? No. Okay. You're yeah. for it. You're for it. Okay. Right. We'll, we'll leave that open. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. I suppose so. I mean, I just think Annette Benning has just such a great, varied career, and she's just shown an amazing amount of talent. She and flies range. under the radar too, yeah. right? You never really consider her. Yeah. So as you said, it was nominated. Was it 14 BAFTAs? It yeah. won six, including Best Picture. One Best Picture Drama at the Golden Globes, all along with two others, yeah, and a million awards. There. Yeah, uh, so, and Sp- Mendez and Spacey both won at the Golden Globes. So what you're saying, universal acclaim. There was really no one who didn't like this movie. It really was almost universally acclaimed. And, and again, not only by critics, but it was huge at the box office. It wasn't one of these Best Picture winners that no one went to see. Yeah, and like you said, Josh, it wouldn't happen today. And they did one of those cool rollouts like Sixth Sense. It was one of those word of mouth builds, right? A few theaters here, a few theaters there. Let it, you know, kind of let the momentum snowball. And I love stuff like that. I mean, you know, this movie aside, it it, it had a really cool marketing plan, much like we talked about in uh, our special Halloween episode, The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I mean, both Blair Witch and Sixth Sense were these word of mouth hits, and and you could say that this was as well. And it did well with audiences. It got a B plus from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service. And with critics, as we're saying, uh, Roger Ebert and his guest critic, David Poland, they gave it two thumbs up. And Roger Ebert in his review said, American Beauty is a comedy because we laugh at the absurdity of the hero's problems and a tragedy because we can identify with his failure, not the specific details, but the general outline. American Beauty is not as dark or twisted as happiness, last year's attempt to shine a light under the rock of American society. It's more about sadness and loneliness than about cruelty or inhumanity. Nobody is really bad in this movie, just shaped by society in such a way that they can't be themselves or feel joy. And he also spends like a lot of this review defending the idea that Lester Burnham is attracted to a teenager, which... I mean, like we said, it was universally acclaimed. It was accepted in society then. Like this is, we go down this wormhole of like, societal changes that's the whole podcast this week right but it is um it would never even get made today no no it definitely would not Um, and but i mean i think but would lolita get published today maybe not maybe not and i don't know if you would be able to make a movie out of lolita right now but i mean i think it was interesting to me not only in this review but in in most of the other the other reviews and stuff that i read that people saw lester burnham as sort of, if not a hero, at least uh, a, someone to root for, 
uh, sympathetic protagonist. He was at the time. He was. I guess he was. But watching this movie and and to me, I thought, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to like this. Right. Because this reputation has taken such a I mean, more so than any other movie from this era, I think, has just gone Crash. in the opposite direction. Well, I hated Crash. To yeah. begin with, but and I thought, I, I don't think I'm going to like this. But the thing to me about watching this now about Lester Burnham is like Lester Burnham is a horrible person. And I could watch this movie and sort of still appreciate the movie with that perspective that I don't know that that's necessarily the filmmaker's perspective, especially you read about Alan Ball's inspiration and things like that. I think the movie kind of endorses Lester, but I think you can watch it and, and hate him and still kind of appreciate the portrayal. Well, Josh, uh, as you know, I often reference in this season, the Brian Raftery book, uh, best movie year ever. Uh, this quote is from Sam Mendes. I love that Alan, Alan Ball never came down on one side or the other on Lester. In one sense, he's heroic, and in another sense, he's pathetic. And if you look across the films of that year, 1999, they were stories about outliers, the loners, the people that no one pays attention to. So this is, we've talked about Fight Club. Uh, we will be talking about Dave's pick uh, coming up, which also, you know, kind of has these droll office workers who just kind of fly by the wayside. So yeah, I mean, this was there was something uh, something in the air, I guess, of uh, corporate America just sucking the life out of you at this point in time. Yeah, I think those other movies have a much better handle on that, though. And especially in Fight Club, as we talked about a lot, where it's not endorsing the behavior of the characters and it is, in fact, satirizing them. And I think this movie is trying to satirize that corporate environment or the, the stifling nature of the suburbs. And Lester is like the guy who breaks through it all and yeah. is like a maverick. And, and he's he's terrible. He's just well, awful. I mean, and this is what's interesting with all this reassessment of this film, like you were saying, right? Like at the time, like you said, he was the hero out of those movies. He's the one clearly by this box office that people most rooted for. Yes. And that is horrifying. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I did I did look for some some slightly more critical responses. Uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times, though, was generally very positive. She said, American beauty hammers heavily on the notion that nonconformity is needed here. That thought that thought is repeated frequently and never carries a wit of surprise. But scene by scene, the film is full of its own brand of corrosive novelty from the way Lester transforms himself in hopes of attracting the cheerleader to the revitalizing effects of Carolyn's acrobatic affair with a fellow real estate agent. As these characters struggle viciously and hilariously to escape the middle-class doldrums, the film also evinces a real and ever more stirring compassion. As it detects increasingly vital signs of life behind the absurd surfaces that Mendez presents so beautifully, the film takes on a gravity to match its evil zest. Acrobatic affair. Let's get into that. Yeah. Well, you know, there is that one very uh, enthusiastic sex scene yeah. between Annette Benning and Peter Gallagher. Yes. Beyond her uh, prowess as an actress, she's clearly quite flexible in, yeah. that, <laughs> in that scene. So that it's interesting is. that that Janet Maslin referenced that. You know. Yeah, man. I mean. Um, uh -huh. Keep going, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think she points another thing out here that this movie is maybe a comedy. I'm not sure. I think it is. Yeah. And it's interesting because, again, I'm, I wasn't sure if 
it, when I found parts of it funny now, if those were parts that, if those were things that were intended to be funny or there were intended to be like, you know, Lester's triumphs or whatever. And I just was laughing at their absurdity, but maybe, I mean, some of it. And I think they ball and Mendez both had talked about how the tone kind of shifted for them as they were making the movie. And maybe it was meant more comedically at one point. Yeah. And then it became darker in the edit with the soundtrack, but you can tell by Spacey's performance, like, He's playing it in almost, I don't want to say, he's not mugging by any means. I mean, but he is very deadpan in that performance. And then he becomes more emotional and more more invested um, as Lester does in life. Yeah, but I do think also that some of the funnier things are things that are meant to be like Lester's breakout moments that show that he's... Uh, taking control of his life and it's just laughable like what i mean like when he buys the car uh and uh is you know telling off carolyn i think i think in instances like that what people liked related to or you know kind of live vicariously through was the idea of someone who has gotten to the point where he was able to scrape away everything nothing matters and he's just going to do whatever he wants which is again a theme we've seen throughout these movies in this year right right i mean that's clearly what it's aiming for or what people connected with i just felt like it was almost the opposite that he's not i mean he's just trading one sort of corporate capitalistic position for another Disagree with you there, Josh, because, I mean, he already has the money in this severance package, right? Well, but that's not going to last him for the rest of his life. No, I mean, and he's not going to flip burgers for the rest of his life. I mean, I well, he does because, you know, well, spoiler alert, he's dead. But um, (laughs) but but Josh, what I'm saying is it's not. uh, Yes. Yes. He buys a materialistic thing, but it's a symbol of his youth, the dream car he always wanted. Right. When it's, he was it's, young. It, it's pathetic that he's trying to recapture that. Yeah, he's, he's having the midlife crisis. Right. Which is but, funny, but I think the movie is presenting it as some sort of triumph. Right. So the idea is not that he bought the car. That's pathetic. It's the motivation behind buying the car at the same time. If you've always wanted something and you finally attain the, ability to buy it isn't that like nice for you i mean sure but the way it's treated is not just like isn't that nice that he got the car he always wanted but that this is some sort of you know grand gesture against the the oppressiveness of society that he bought a red sports car this is what i'm saying a lot to unpack buddy yeah so uh david edelstein and slate had a lot of good things to say but i picked out some negative things he said Uh, American Beauty is so wittily written and gorgeously directed that you might think you're seeing something archetypal, maybe even the great American movie. But when you stop and smell the roses, well, that scent isn't miracle grow. The hairpin turns from farce to melodrama, from satire to bathos, are fresh and deftly navigated. But almost every one of the underlying attitudes is smug and easy. The kind of detachment the movie is peddling isn't artistic. It isn't life. It's nihilism at its most fatuous. In the end, American beauty is new age nihilism. And I think the smugness of this of this perspective is really and Lester Lester and also we should say Ricky is also horrible. Uh, and I think they both come across as these like 
entitled douchebags to me in this movie, which I can laugh at, but again, I'm not sure if that's the point. I mean, they everyone does in this movie. You know, it's 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 easy to pick on Lester. Well, because he's the main character right. and we see the most of but him. But every single character except the gyms, right? <laughs> next door. Yeah. Right. And the gyms I apparently were meant to be satirical because they're, you know, they're they're represent uh, the sort of gay counterculture going into suburban boringness, but I didn't see it that way. You're right. right. They because, were they were the only nice, good people. Right, because we're reassessing 21 years later. At the time, Alan Ball was like, "Can can we just have a gay couple act like any other couple?" Right, right. right. So, um, which is interesting. Yeah. So, but yeah, everyone's horrible in this movie, or yes. um, has had horrible things done that have made them not even um really act as humans anymore you know uh, as an allison janney's character and i love allison janney and she's very good that's a very startling what she does in this movie compared to everyone else's it's very startling it you know really shocks right you. right and she plays ricky's mother who is kind of almost catatonic half the time yeah i wonder if like we said, if there was a version of this today, she would probably be on Oxy or something like that. Yeah, maybe so. And one of the things uh, I will probably, I'm sure you research a lot of these details, but I did see that she had a lot more lines yeah. in the script and they decided to cut those out. And I think that works for that character. You get exactly the sense of how trapped she is by the way that she just does not speak. Right. I do think so too. And I think, look, whatever you feel about the movie now, like, they were able to craft something that connected and connected in a big way. That is true. It's clearly something that connected a lot with, again, not only critics and awards voters, but also audiences across this whole, uh, across the spectrum in 1999. And now um, I picked a quote from my favorite film critic, Josh, President Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> An amazing film. Okay, we've got this nice, neat little suburban lifestyle and we're comfortable. And now what? I must say it was also a disturbing movie. I will say that uh, Bill Clinton connecting with Lester Burnham is perhaps not surprising. <laughs> I'm so glad that you took that. It was like a nice setup and you spiked yeah. it down. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> Good one. Good yeah, one. thank you. So, I mean, I, and, and to be fair, one of the people who connected with this movie strongly in 1999 was me. Like, I loved this movie when I saw it in the theater. I thought it was great. And I was with everyone else on it. Yeah, I loved it, too. And um, the first time I saw it again, I had mentioned, you know, going to Boston University. And we got a lot of movies ahead of time because they wanted that college word of mouth. And uh, this was one of them. And I, I loved it, too, at the time. Yeah. Dave, did you see this when it came out? Definitely. I don't remember if it was in the theater or at home. It must have been in the theater, though, since I saw it before the Oscars. So, right. You know? Yeah. Back then, you didn't really get it back on streaming so quickly. And were there, you... was no, there was no streaming You're in right. 1999. Exactly. So you couldn't even get it. No, sure. yeah. Right. It's right. very, Even if you tried. very frustrating. Very, very Net hard. If, Netflix if had no movies in yeah. 1999. DVDs, maybe, at Netflix? I think that's what I meant. DVDs. No, not, <laughs> not Netflix DVDs. DVDs existed. No, but, but Netflix wasn't doing the delivery. I don't think it then? started until, like, 2000. Three maybe? Oh, no, it definitely started when I, when we were. Oh, in maybe so. Okay, I yeah. take that back. Fair hey, enough. Dave. So, did you like it when you saw it? Loved it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And so, so there we go. So, like, it's all of society because we represent all. We of do society. represent all. Yes, we we're Every, so diverse here at Awesome <laughs> Movie here. Demographic, <laughs> yeah. ethnic group, all of it. Really, geopolitical, it's amazing. Economic yeah. group, you yeah. know, whatever we cover it. Josh. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. It 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 was it was tough to find. 
even slightly critical reviews of this from that time period. Yeah. So even Mendez said that he wasn't surprised by some of the reassessment. He thought that it probably got too much praise at the time. Yeah. Well, it's smart of him to say that. But I, I wonder also, though, so we all saw it when it first came out. And I know for me, I hadn't seen it again until the other day. Did you guys watch it again between then and now? I definitely watched it a few times back then when it was still fresh, but this was the first time I'd seen it in at least a decade. I mean, that would be my guess, too. I don't have any recollection of seeing it again, but I probably, you know, had loved it so much in the theater that I had watched it once or twice on, you know, DVD or something like that. But I have no recollection of that. Okay, no, I'm just wondering if like that that shifting perspective kind of caught up with any of us before now, Uh, but maybe not. So, uh, and any other background you want to share on this, Jason? I have a, another quote from Sam Mendez about what he thought this movie was. A mystery story, a kaleidoscopic journey through American suburbia, a series of love stories. It was about imprisonment, loneliness, and beauty. So I think those are the things we're going to have to talk That's about. That's a lot of things to talk about when we come back in a moment and get into our general thoughts on American beauty. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we are talking about the Academy Awards Best Picture winner, American Beauty, from a first-time screenwriter and a first-time film director, Alan Ball and Sam Mendes. And, I mean, regardless of anything else, what a way to debut. Yeah, it was a huge deal, man. I mean, you know, people like Robert Zemeckis were offered the movie and turned it down. And- Imagine this movie directed by Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> <laughs> Who almost- would have been an entirely CGI creator? Yeah, we would have capture. a CGI. Would, would would there be a motion capture plastic bag or? <laughs> yeah. So the one name that I did, they said they went out to like fifteen or twenty directors, and Ball was one of the people who you know kind of wanted to keep it new. The one name that uh, I thought was interesting was Mike Nichols. He would have done an awesome job with any of these. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously you can see echoes. As we talked about weirdly in multiple episodes this season, Echoes of the Graduate here. Amazing. I, I think we need to critically reassess our uh, episode on The Graduate, which um, has, is so influential on everything of this year. Apparently, yeah. Uh, I liked The Graduate. I mean, I liked it too. I just don't love it like everyone, you know, yeah. does. Uh, well, obviously, uh, I would imagine that Alan Ball probably loved it or, you know, was influenced by it in, in writing this film. I mean... Alan Ball, David Fincher, again, it crosses uh, boundaries, Josh. Totally, totally does. But yeah, um, what were we talking about here, Josh? The uh, possibility of Mike Nichols directing this film. Well, I mean, right. None of these, even Spacey at at the time wasn't a big star, right? I guess, although he'd already won an Oscar for The Usual Suspect. So like how bigger of a star did he need to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this probably sent him into the stratosphere of like leading man stuff. And like we said, Annette Bening, um, which I think Mendez just offered her the role without studio approval. And Smart move, Sam Mendez. Yeah, she's great. I mean, but again, she's never a big name. She's just a working name that we all know, right? And all the teenagers were kind of unknown. So, right. Um, so I don't really know, Josh. I, I, everything about this movie is tough to place. And uh, like you said, it was a phenomenon that broke through and everyone became much bigger because of it. And, um, you know, in the legacy section, they're all still working. They are. 
um, and various levels. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, and, and in reading a little bit about the evolution of this movie, and and as we said, the like tone of it kind of changed as they were working on it. It's amazing that it worked out at all, really, with you know these these first time filmmakers and some of these chances that they took. And I don't know. To me, reading about some of the alternate approaches here, whether they were things in the script that weren't used or things that they shot that were edited out. Every one of those things I have thinking, well, that was a terrible idea. Like the good thing they got rid of it, but how did they, you know, end up with something that worked? Right. They seem to make a lot of right decisions, right? (laughs) Almost randomly though. Yeah. So Josh, about that, Mendez obviously was a very famous theater director at this time. Uh, He had done the Blue Room with Nicole Kidman and the current versions of Oliver and, uh, you know, one of Cap- Cabaret, Cabaret. That was Bob Fosse. Yeah, that was his big thing. And so they all liked, um, you know, Spielberg really liked, because it's a DreamWorks movie, what he was able to do on stage. But one thing we have to credit Mendez with is he really kind of uh, collaborated really well with Conrad Hall, legendary cinematographer we talked about on Cool Hand Luke. But he didn't even want Conrad Hall at the first. Tom Cruise had to convince him to get Conrad Hall. So again, it's like all these things that could have gone wrong seem to have not gone wrong. Of the elements you're talking about, there was a a flashback scene with uh, Colonel Fitz, the Chris Cooper's character. Yeah, where yeah. we see, you know, he you know was attracted to another uh, Marine, you know, and that Marine gets like blown up and killed, and they didn't show that in the original ending. Lester and Angela have sex. And I think, well, yeah, I, that's one of those moments when I was watching the movie this time and it's been so long, I remembered certain things, but I was trying to remember, do they or do they not have sex? And as we get to that scene where they are about to, I thought, God, this, if they have sex, like this movie is just whatever I'm holding on to with it, it's, it's, it's lost me. And at least they made the 100% right decision, not only for like people, but for the story where if you want, the idea of Lester kind of having that awakening, he has to realize like, no, you should not have sex with a 16 year old virgin. Right. He's got to go back. Uh, he's got to realize he's not. that. Right. He's not that guy. And, and maybe being attracted to her was the catalyst for his uh, awakening or whatever, but, but he should not actually have sex with her. And then the other big element, which um, was that, you know, that opening scene with Ricky and Jane and the camcorder, like, my dad is so pathetic. We should just kill him. Do you want me to? Yeah. And then they, the ending is them on trial for the murder of uh, Lester. Which is just such an awful idea. And I was wondering, because that is something that they actually shot and then cut out. And I was wondering if those deleted scenes, they weren't on the DVD that I watched, but I wonder if they're out there somewhere. I would be curious to see them just because just there's such a bad idea. Well, I know, but so I mean, like, so who's, I mean, is it Mendez? Is it Spielberg? Is it Ball? Like, whoever's making these decisions, you know, they're doing good jobs to, like, carve away the fat and get to the right movie for themselves. Right. No, I suppose that's true. I mean, you could argue that, well, they also made the wrong decision in the first place by coming up with those ideas. I mean, did they, though? Because, I mean, the first, there were 10 drafts of the script, right? So in, those, in the drafts of the script, the flashback, which they might have shot, was in there. Those two other elements uh, were already in there, and they still got this project to where it is, right? So things evolve, things change. Um, but um, yeah, it is, um, 
it's a real mystery. Isn't yeah, it? So. it is. It is. And I think some of those aspects are still like, no, they don't have those scenes of Jane and Ricky being on trial. But one thing I found really unsuccessful this time was anything that set this up as like the mystery of who killed Lester Burnham. One thing I found really unsuccessful was everything involving Jane and Ricky. I didn't believe any of it. I agree with you. I don't know. Wes Bentley almost played him, you know, as having um, no ability to emote in any way, you know. And Thora Birch, who I like, uh, the character, there really wasn't much to the character except, you don't understand me, Dad. You yeah, know? yeah. That whole thing. I mean, again, as as insufferable as Lester is, He's more obviously that way. And, and you could argue that the movie is presenting him as sort of a buffoon in some senses. But Ricky is meant to be like the profound right, heart the of voice this. of the yes. people. And he's awful. He's such a dick. And he, like the, the fact that he is, you know, spying on Jane, essentially, and then filming her without her consent is presented as this like, Oh, but he's just so in love with the beauty of the world. And she, you know, falls for him. And, and, and no, he's, a, he's a creep. I mean, the, uh, Angela, Mina Suvari's character is meant to be this kind of superficial, uh, bitchy cheerleader or whatever. And she says all these mean things about Ricky that I think were meant to disagree with. But I was thinking, no, no, she's right about him. Everyone can be right about everyone in this movie. Pretty though. much. But, yeah. You know, in 99, right? Like American Pie was 99. Mina Savari was in that. And there was another, you know, one of the big scenes was the um, the uh, Jason Big Shannon Elizabeth scene, the webcam scene, which again, this, you know, the different society now, right? That was that was played as comedy. Now it would be a criminal uh, endeavor, and it should have been then. But um, right, but I mean, Ricky's habit isn't isn't played as comedy. Even I mean, you could almost right. He's so serious, right? You could almost excuse that in American Pie by saying, "Well, we're laughing at the the behavior of these characters." But here, it's Ricky is supposed to be this you know, sort of enlightened soul. And yeah. he's not. And I want to get back to that. But I do want to talk, you know, Chris Cooper and Alice and Jenny, who, you know, come on. They're like, great actors. You can't get better than those two. But it feels like they're juxtaposed from a different movie into this thing. And maybe that's how it's supposed to be. But it does definitely seems like their world is very different than the rest of the film. Right. Chris Cooper, who plays uh, Ricky's dad, is this marine veteran or is I, it wasn't clear to me if he was a veteran or he was still in the marines because he always introduces himself with his rank well yeah i think he's just the retired military man who identifies as military. yeah he identifies as military um because he can identify uh as gay or is, bisexual right or whatever yeah. is is going on with his sexuality that he's clearly repressing and taking out all of his anger at himself on ricky um, who isn't gay, but, you know, uh, he's so, the father is so afraid that his son could turn out to be yeah. gay or just different in any way that he beats him and he sends him to a psychiatric institution and all this stuff. And then, of course, he is the catalyst for that, whatever we want to call the mystery of who killed Lester Burnham, because spoiler alert, it was him. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is if you did that kind of story today about a parent who had such a hatred built up for his kid uh, being gay. Like you'd be like, yeah, there are people like that out there, but like, that's a very passe subject at this point in time. And like 
hooray. Like we were actually evolving as a society. Right? No, yeah, that's so. good. And I mean, I suppose mm-hmm. you could argue that some of the reason that this movie doesn't work anymore is because its attitudes are outdated. And that is good. But even in reading reviews, I mean, and Janet Maslin mentions this in her review, that even in 1999, a lot of the themes here were old, you know, were rehashed. They weren't what fresh. Do you, what do you think? What, like, which themes do you think those are? Well, I mean, I think the theme of you're, you're saying that if we had that character now, the, the, the repressed gay father, it would seem quaint or whatever. But I think the idea of that kind of character type was still very familiar here. Uh, or even, you know, if we want to talk about The Graduate again or whatever, you know, the, the person stifled by suburbia who's going to break free from it. This wasn't a movie that invented that idea. No, it didn't. But like we said, there were plenty of other movies of this year that were working into that theme as well. Right. I mean, to me, this movie feels, I guess that's another thing is that this was such a sensation, but it feels not very original in any of the character types or... But clearly it had to be at the time, right? I mean, I don't know that it did. Just because it was successful doesn't mean that it was original. Maybe this goes into the legacy, but I think part of that is because this was done over and over and over again in the years following it. That's, I, mean, and that, I agree with that. That's true, but I feel like this had also been done in the years prior, and, yeah. and I think that is, is worn out when you read some of these reviews from the time period. That's so. why I think the tone and the music all played part of that, and the cinematography is really really good you can't you can't hate on conrad hall josh no no he's very talented and and i think you're right that again whether you like it or not the tone and the the sort of structure of this are what people were were drawn to the performances all of that so josh i said three three things i really like the cinematography uh well four things i like the use of the rock music to kind of showcase the youthification of lester there you know right music which now sounds like old person music right bob o'reilly but again that's been played in everything since yeah. then right i love peter gallagher and everything even though he's got a small part here sure you know yeah. and, and, he's, and, a, and, he's a very enthusiastic lover as we uh noted. Yeah. buddy king so yeah buddy kane buddy king you know i think uh, yeah his name is kane but he calls yeah. himself like the king of and, and i think annette benning shines in this you know and um i'll throw one other thing in that scene where the two of them go through the drive through at Smiley's. I thought that was a very effective and funny scene. And Lester just accepting and, you know, hey, I get it that you're having an affair. Do you want, I don't really care. Do you want Smiley sauce with it? And just how little it means to him. I thought that was probably the best scene in the movie for me. Yeah, that, that is, I mean, I, that is an amusing scene, but I feel like, like almost anything, it, it ends up being like overplayed. Like it, everything is drawing attention to how important it is. And no, that's, that is important. That's the break from, you know, that's the end almost. Of yeah. The, I mean, it is, well, it is close to the end of the movie, but I mean, not just important for the characters, but like important as like a thing for the, like as, as an important statement about the world and about right. life. And but stuff. that's the whole point, isn't it? Of this movie that it there is, is a and lot that's of, what I find annoying yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to throw out some positives of the movie. Right. I mean, right? and I didn't so. hate this, you know, we've talked about some best picture winners like Forrest Gump that, uh, you know, I just loathe. And, and I didn't, I, again, I came into this kind of thinking, I think I may hate this just from the reputation that it's gotten over the years. And it seems like this is something that I won't end up liking. And I didn't hate it. I wasn't, blown away by it by any means like i was in 1999 
but I felt like there were things to enjoy. And I, I think, again, the main thing for me was watching this movie with the perspective of these are all terrible people and we're watching them sort of self-destruct. And I found that amusing, which is not the point of the movie, but it's kind of what I got out of well, it this time. Well, gee, Josh, how many seasons have we had of the Kardashians since then? And shows <laughs> like that, have we not had rea the reality television of America where we're seeing horrible people self-destruct on TV all the time now? I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't watch that stuff. I don't generally. either, but I think that's part of the point is like we were moving... Because, you know, Ball said, like, part of the inspiration was the Joey Buttafuoco, Amy Fisher scandal, right? And, like, how she was vilified for the whole thing. And she should have been vilified for, you know, shooting a woman in the head. Yeah, no, that's bad. But he should also have been vilified for, you know, be having an extramarital affair with a high school girl, right? Right. So, and that's a big thing mm. that we're having now is kind of a reassessment a lot of, of a lot of those 90s scandal subjects, whether it's Amy Fisher or Lorena Bobbitt or Monica Lewinsky. And, you know, here you might reassess uh, Carolyn or whatever, who I think is set up as more of the person to hate in this movie. But she does. Lester. She's, you know, she's not a good person either, is she? No, she's not. She's not. But I think the dichotomy that the movie sets up is that she's bad and Lester is triumphing over her. Whereas to me, watching the movie now, it's like Lester is terrible and she's also kind of terrible, but not as bad bad as Lester she, and is at least trying to kind of accomplish something and hold her life together. Yeah, she, but no, she's not a good yeah, person. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not defending Lester in any way, but I'm saying like she is a worse or at least as bad a parent as he is. I mean, she's horrible to Jane. She is not trying to sleep with her daughter's no, best friend. Sure, that's what I said. But she's also diminishing her daughter at every point in time. True. Or at least Lester is, um, you know, from time to time, like trying to regain a relationship with his daughter. That is true. And she's not a good, pure, she's definitely not a good parent and she's not a good wife. I mean, she does cheat on Lester, even if he doesn't treat her that well. Um, but I, I found more to sympathize with from her perspective than from his, even if, if she's overall not. Well, good. that's what I'm saying. I don't know if there's anyone to sympathize with in this movie. There's no except, one to fully. the gyms. Yeah, the gyms. Right. <laughs> there for like one minute. Right. Maybe, and how about the there, John Cho cameo as one of the potential home? Oh, yeah. I didn't even so. notice that until I saw his name in the credits. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think overall you're right. That none of these characters are sympathetic, really, yeah. when it comes down to it. The teenagers aren't. Like, I mean, dude, a few years later, Thoreau Birch would go on to make Ghost World. That's a much more interesting character. Right? It is. It is. And like you say, Jane is not. She, she just exists to kind of react, whether it's to react to Lester or react to Ricky or, or even to, to Angela or to Carolyn, even so to some of the female characters. She doesn't really have anything in terms of, like, agency on her own. And, and I think that's... You know, that could have been explored a little differently because there are, especially teenagers who uh, don't have their own identity, who are trying to, mean girls, for instance, right, trying to fit in in one way or another and have to, you know, find their identity through other people of what they think is right or wrong and then learn for themselves. Right. And that seems like almost what she's doing. You know, she starts off and she's best friends with Angela. And it seems like she's kind of goes along with what Angela says or does. They're on the dance team together. and. Uh, she agrees with Angela about things and then she meets Ricky and then it's almost like her personality changes and she just becomes 
the girl that Ricky wants. And yeah. so she never really comes into her own here. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, one other thing, Josh. We have to talk about that plastic bag scene. And like, <laughs> is this the most overly hyped uh, scene in the history of cinema? Yeah, it's 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 laughable. And and again, I feel like watching that. Right, it feels so amateurish. Yeah, it's and and I just think like that scene, you hear what Ricky says and you're like, this dude is an idiot. And it's funny that he's an idiot, but that's not what it's meant to be. Right. That's what I'm saying. It was, uh, you know, there's so much beauty in this world that, break, you know, my heart can't take it sometimes. Right. Why did that scene work back then? That's what I want. Well, I, I think I have an answer for you. Yeah. And it's something that Josh didn't like, but Jason did like, and I like too. And that's the Thomas Newman score. I think that's why that scene connected so well back then. Yeah. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. And my heart is going to cave in Ricky. Ricky. And you know what's funny about that is that apparently that scene was inspired by an actual experience that yeah. Alan Ball had staring at a plastic bag for 10 minutes. And I'm just imagining this dude standing on the street, staring at a plastic bag for 10 minutes. I have a question. Alan Ball, we know, is gay. If he was straight, do you think there would be a backlash of toxic masculinity towards him about this movie? I mean, I think there is some of that anyway. I mean, just because Alan Ball is gay, not everyone else involved in the film was gay. And that doesn't even, and even if they were, that doesn't mean that you can't have that perspective in the film. So I think so. I mean, and I think, you know, this is outside the content of the film, but I think Mina Suvari has talked about being uncomfortable and Thor Birch has talked about being uncomfortable, you know, filming those scenes. Thor Birch was underage. Right. She had to get her parents' permission. Then the parents were on set and, you know, all that stuff. They, you know, look, whatever you want to say, they at least went through the proper safety precautions. That, of that is right? that is true. But I had thought it was with, I mean, with Thora Birch, she was all in on it. She's like, this is the character I want to play. And, and you know, she felt that was an important part of the character. and everything. Maybe that was the case at the time. Maybe I'm confused. I know Mina Suvari has talked about it recently because she has a memoir out. And I think she was uncomfortable. But I think regardless, like you don't need to show those actors naked to get across what this movie is conveying. And especially if the ultimate message here is that Lester is wrong and shouldn't have sex with Angela, which he realizes rightly at the end of the film, why is the movie then sort of wallowing in that uh, lurid perspective about by by showing her like that. Well, I will say, you know, if I was going to defend that one, I would say that's probably uh, some of the best acting Mina Savari's ever done in that scene. And two, I think it's the vulnerability of being nude, right? There is a real vulnerability about that. Well, right, but it's not like we don't know that she's nude. I'm not saying she should have kept her clothes on. I'm saying they didn't, saying they didn't need to show it. Yeah. yeah. And especially the Thora Birch scene where it's really superfluous when she takes her top off there to show that. Do you think so? Or do you think it's like a teenager, you know, trying to titillate and express her sexuality? I mean, again, I think showing it to us, the audience. Okay. I'm looking is, at the emotional, you know, side, like the emotional um, motivation of the character. Yeah, and that's true. But I think there are ways to frame those scenes that didn't need to show those actors naked in a way that sort of adopts Lester Burnham's perspective or Ricky's perspective, which are gross, unpleasant perspectives mm. to take. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack on this one, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, so Josh, what, what name name a thing or two that you did like from there? I did like Annette Benning's performance. Um, I think you know, there's there's a lot of like broad elements to this character, um, but she made it feel real to me. Um, I loved Annette Benning's hair. I feel like she is the the proto Karen here in her yeah. haircut. Do, how great is the scene where she's um, driving and singing "Don't Rain on My Parade" and like you can see all the different emotions that she's like that hope and hatred all in one there. She's really good. Yeah, she's great. I mean, and to me, she's the best uh, performance in this film. So I, I liked her a lot. I thought some of the sort of sarcastic comments were kind of funny. The cinematography is good, as as we mentioned. Not just good, but it's really effective to kind of elevate the emotions of the scenes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think my perspective here was not as much like, oh, I liked this and this and this. It was, I didn't hate this in the way that I kind of thought that I might. Yeah. So that's a, that's the most positive I can get here. Well, then why don't we rate this thing, Josh? Sure. Should we rate it out of uh, five plastic bags? Uh, I guess in the wind? Is that well, yeah. is that just yeah. too obvious? No, yeah. Well, it's is is something too obvious? Then it's perfect for this yeah. film. There you go. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I I mean, there's enough good stuff in here where it's at least a three. I don't want to go higher than that. Maybe okay. Three point two five. Oh man, you're really <laughs> ripping those plastic bags yeah, into little like pieces. A, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna, but you know what? It's three point two five. But that. Other 0.75, I'm going to recycle that part of the plastic bag. <laughs> okay. Uh, I give it two and a half plastic bags because, again, I didn't hate it. It's I can I can appreciate some of what it's aiming for, but I think it just is maybe better left in 1999. So, Dave? I keep going back and forth between four and three and a half, mm. but uh, I, I think I'm going to stick at three and a half. Yeah. Okay. And now, let, real fast, because we yes. all said we loved it, wouldn't we? What do you think you would have given it on your original viewing? I mean, I think I would have given it at least four stars. Like, I don't know that I made like a top 10 list when I was in college in 1999, but I'm sure it would have been on there. And if not for Fight Club, which we, you know, as we talked about in our previous episode, which I thought was just the most brilliant, you know, this was probably close on there so i'd give it a five back then and this is an embarrassing admission but this movie was kind of my like gateway into watching dramas basically you know what i mean it's not embarrassing it, it like, led you yeah. to better stuff yeah, yeah. it led me to better yeah. stuff absolutely so uh yeah it probably would have gotten four four and a half for me back then and uh, i have a funny story to tell about that in the legacy section all right well we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of american beauty Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we're talking about Best Picture Oscar winner, American Beauty. And I think part of the legacy of this film is the fact that everyone loved it and now very few people love it. Who still loves it? I'm sure somebody still loves it. Yeah. I mean, Dave still loves it, yeah, right, Dave? I, like, I liked it a lot. I, I may stop short of love, but it's great. I know. No, that's cool. I, yeah. I'm glad that you're that you're sticking by it if you feel that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are people who, especially people who maybe don't pay attention closely to critics and especially to critical reassessments or whatever, who just would come to this and, and enjoy it and, and not think about that. You know, what's interesting is, and we've talked about this a few times on the show, like we try our best uh, and we, I think we all kind of believe like in the, the gig and how we want to watch movies. We want to separate the art from the artist, you know? And I think 
when we did Annie Hall, it was easier because Woody Allen started before we were born. Kevin Spacey, because like we kind of grew up with him as, you know, usual suspects. And then this, this is a much tougher one to separate for me. This is, but weirdly enough, as I said, for me watching it this time, I, I sort of appreciated it because I could think of Lester as being this total creep. And I feel like the fact that Kevin Spacey is a creep in real life actually made it easier for me to view the movie that way and appreciate the movie as this examination of a terrible person. Well, yeah, sure. But at the same time, like we know he's a good actor and he doesn't have to play a creep to be, uh, you know, no, 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 he doesn't. But I mean, what he does in this movie is play a creep. I do want to say this uh, at that screening that I was at at Boston university, the cast was there always exciting. Yeah. And you know, they did a Q and a afterwards and everyone's asking questions about the movie and, one student got up and said, this question's for Kevin Spacey. How does it feel to be the coolest man alive? And, <laughs> oh. and, and everyone clapped. And, and that, that student and, was you. <laughs> no, it, it was not. <laughs> but I mean, and everyone clapped and, you know, Spacey, uh, very charming, said, you know, it's, it's a tough job that someone's got to do it. But like, he was a darling for years, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He was. I mean, he won an Oscar for this film. People thought he was brilliant. And uh, not just that. I mean, you know, we talked about uh, House of Cards. Like, he is a catalyst to the entire streaming television revolution. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and, and I agree with you. He is a very good actor who gave a lot of very good performances. I think in this context... Right, you're saying his, his creepiness kind of comes the, out uh, in this film, and that's what I mean. It's tougher to separate the art from the artist on this one, Josh. Right. What do you think of? Uh, I like, you know, I like the alternate casting. A uh, few names for Lester: Bruce Willis, ninety nine, maybe, maybe. Yeah, we talked about in the Sixth Sense, nineteen ninety nine. Bruce Willis was good. Yeah, and I think he definitely had like. Well, Kevin Spacey had that more everyman thing, but Bruce Willis had more of that like guys want to be this guy, so that could have been interesting. Although I don't know if I would have believed you know, how just kind of uh, sad sacky he became and that Carolyn, you know, is uh, having an affair. This I mean, I always can believe someone's having an affair. Kevin Costner, not very good at comedy. Uh, yeah, but I feel like Kevin Costner could have made this interesting. Um, here, and I think I, I'm talking about the 1999 version of him. John Travolta, I think, could have done a good job. Yeah, uh, even by 1999, I don't know. Uh, here's an interesting name. Chevy Chase, 99. No, Chevy Chase of any year. <laughs> I don't 80? think. You don't think 83, No, no, 84? Chevy Chase is not. Even if you are like, oh, Chevy Chase is hilarious. He's not a good dramatic actor. All right. So some other ones for uh, Carolyn, uh, Helen Hunt. I don't really not. I, she's very acclaimed, but I'm not. Yeah, I don't fan. like her either. Holly Hunter. She's great at everything. She would have been great in this. Yeah. yeah. And then Angela, you know, we've all said how much we like Kirsten Dunst. She would have done great. But I like I said, I think this is Mina Savari's probably best performance. Yeah, it's and it was a big breakout for her. So as you said, I mean, a, a breakout for all of these people, really. Kevin Spacey, of course. <laughs> the biggest career going out of this, I mean, became just this big major leading man star for many, many years after this movie. And uh, not so much now. He's back, though. He's not got, as a leading man, though. He's got three movies coming. Out. Yeah, I mean, he's back in the sense of and we might have talked about this when we talked about him in, in the ref uh, a while back, where no matter what terrible thing you've done, some opportunistic producer of a low budget movie will hire you in order to get publicity for their okay, movie. But I will say this, like the ones that I read about sound like interesting 
projects that he could have been doing, you know, back in the day, you know? I don't know. I mean, I, they're all There's on such... Okay, do you know what they are? Well, I mean, I know he was working with Franco Nero in an Italian film. That the was the first thing right, was announced. The Man Who Drew God, Faye Dunaway is in that. And it's about, a, uh, I think, like a police sketch artist who can hear voices, like the voice of a suspect and is able to draw them accurately from that. That's kind of interesting. He's playing Gore Vidal in Gore. No, he's not. That was something that he was doing before he got uh, canceled. And that movie is never coming out. Oh, okay. And then some movie called Peter Five Eight. That, yeah, that that he's also doing, which is just some you know no budget independent film. And it's not to say that 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 Italian film isn't a good concept or this. I don't know what the plot is for this Peter Five Eight, but I mean they're not big movies, and nor nor are they movies where he's playing the lead role. You know, they're hiring him is like what stunt, you know Bruce Willis does or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's the stunt casting so that they can but, get publicity. But what's for their... interesting is you know when we talk about Bruce Willis in that regard, it's you know just like or Nicolas Cage or whatever, right? Although we like Nicolas Cage, like they're hiring him for that stunt casting aspect. But Kevin, but none of them have the baggage Kevin Spacey has. No, that's true. That's true. Um, but I mean, I think it's sort of the same concept of we get this recognizable person here and it gets publicity for our film. And in, in, in these cases, it has this sort of added controversy. And, you know, I'm sure those people are willing. I mean, Franco Nero, at least, I think, talked about how, you know, Kevin Spacey doesn't deserve to have been, you know, right. these are people who are also maybe making some kind of political yeah. statement here by doing sure. this. So I really wanted to see Georgetown, that movie with Annette Benning and Christoph Waltz. Did you ever see that? Or? I didn't. Yeah, that was a recent movie that Christoph Waltz also directed. Yeah. Um, I didn't. But as we said, I mean, Annette Benning is great. She was nominated four times for Best Actress, uh, also for The Grifters, for Being Julia, and for The Kids Are All Right, in addition to this, but has not won. I loved her recent, not that recently, I guess, but most recently in 20th Century Women, which I think is just a great, great movie overall. And she she was in Captain Marvel, so she got swallowed up into the Marvel universe well, too. That's okay. She's doing Death on the Nile. That's another franchisey thing that broke out. And then she's playing Diana Nyad, the woman who swam from uh, Florida or Cuba yeah. to Florida. And then something called Jerry and Marge Go Large, which is another kind of true story thing. Yeah, uh, I mean she's, she's she'll awesome. continue yeah. doing great work, I'm yeah. sure. So uh, let's see. Wes Bentley works regularly in TV. He was in. Mission Impossible Fallout. I think he's done better since this movie. Yeah, well, he had a lot of uh, drug problems uh, when he was younger, like right around the time of this movie, I think, and really fell off for a while. But yeah, I mean, all of these, the the, the teenage actors, Wes Bentley, Mina Suvari, Thora Birch, they all kind of have similar careers right now. They work steadily in like TV and supporting, supporting roles. roles. Yeah, None of them be, are huge stars at the moment, but they seem to be steadily yeah. working. Chris Cooper, Dave, has this movie called Light on the Broken Glass coming out that sounds very Charlie Kaufman-esque. I thought you'd like to know. Well, him and Adaptation is so good. Yeah, yeah Chris great. Cooper is, is great. Is fantastic. Is. Do you have an underrated Chris Cooper movie? that yeah, I mean, I've mentioned Preach on this show a lot. But, right. Well, I mean, we talked about Lone Star. Yeah. That's you know, that's a great film. October Sky, him and Jake Gyllenhaal. Right? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that. And, of course, Sam Mendes after debuting with this is this huge a-list director yeah how do you rank his movies like and not, let's leave out the, the bond well you can put in the well bond see i what i was gonna though. say is that skyfall i think is his best movie you do i really do because i think as a director of dramas a lot of the the kind of heavy-handed overstated stuff in this movie 
is in, you know, like Revolutionary Road or Jarhead. And I mean, I haven't seen Road to Perdition in a long time since it came out in theaters. And so maybe I'd want to revisit that. But I think those movies are, or even 1917, which is also a big action spectacle, but, you know, I think has that, that seriousness to it. The balance there in Skyfall, because he brings some of that, that serious heaviness to the James Bond character, but also delivers on the action spectacle stuff, that to me is like the perfect balance. And I really do think that's his best film. Cool. I, you know, I would want to revisit Road to Perdition also. I haven't seen that, but I, re- I really loved Revolutionary Road. I think that's one of Kate Winslet's best performances and she doesn't get the credit and that she deserves for that. Uh, away we go. That's an underrated. Away movie, we go right? is nice. Yeah. And that, that's one that, that I think he sort of like, he's not prolific and he spends a lot of time developing movies and stuff. And that was one where he just kind of did it quickly. And maybe that worked out for the best because it was a breezy, nice film. Yeah. But 1917 was a huge deal. Roger Deakins, obviously the cinematography uh, to make it, it, it wasn't all one shot, right? It was supposed to, it looked like it was one shot. Yeah. So the new one he's got empire of light is a love story set around a beautiful old cinema on the South coast of England in the 1980s. That could be fun. Sure. It could be. And then Alison Janney won her Oscar. So we're happy about that. Yeah. Alison Janney is, is great. Again, she's a kind of a small part of this film, but you know, uh, a memorable one. Yeah, she's very memorable in this movie. Um, hey, one thing about Sam Mendes is he worked for scale because this was his first movie, 150K. And then after all the taxes and paying agents and everything, he took home like $38,000. What a, what a good bet for him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it paid off later. I'm sure he got a lot more money than that for directing his later films. And Alan Ball has not done much in movies, but I mean, he's a huge... TV showrunner, uh, you know, he kind of got six feet under, I think, pretty much yeah. right after this, based on the strength of this. Also uh, ran True Blood for a million seasons. Rebooting it already. Yeah, whatever. Reason. And he had a third HBO series that was very short-lived called Here and Now, which I remember got terrible reviews. Did you watch that one? No, I haven't watched. Uh, I think I watched maybe three or four episodes of True Blood, and I've never watched Six, six Feet Under. I loved Six Feet Under. I think it has one of the best serious finales that's ever been done but i don't know if he was running the show at the time i liked the first few seasons of uh true blood and then it just got horrible and i couldn't finish it but um yeah he's he's doing things josh he is i mean he hasn't done much in movies he wrote and directed a couple more movies uh towelhead which i did see that was kind of a controversial uh based on a novel i think about yeah. a, a middle eastern immigrant and fairly recently, a movie called Uncle Frank that was an Amazon original that I think like this was partially inspired by some uh, elements of his life. And it's a, a, a gay character who is not not repressed like Chris Cooper's character, but I think maybe has to, has to kind of keep it on the down low or whatever. So that movie got decent reviews, but I did not see it. I didn't see it either, but I do like the song Baba O'Reilly, <laughs> by the, which was in every commercial. <laughs> that is the most important aspect of this here. Well, Josh, I mentioned Brian Raftery, and in the last uh, sentence of the chapter on um, American Beauty, I think this is an interesting way to sum it up because he was talking about the backlash, right? And he says, mainly the bashers thought the whole thing was just too cartoonish. Who would believe that Nazi sympathizers would be living in picket fence America or that a middle-aged square like Lester could be such a, a sleazy creep? Or that everyone in America was just so angry. It sounds very much like the last four years, you know. 
Yeah, okay. But see, to me, the the problem isn't that it's unbelievable or cartoonish. It's just that it's it's in a way that it's it's so obvious and heavy handed. Right. Over about the it. oh, it hits you over the head. With yeah, so. I just thought that was an interesting summation. Right. No, that's that's a fair that's a fair statement. Dave, do you want to say anything about the legacy of that score, that Thomas Newman score? Yeah, actually, just the that. Just like I said earlier that this movie was done over and over and over again, that score became the backbone of like so many of these kinds of like quirky dramas, you know, and even into like TV. I mean, a lot of made for TV movies, the scores sound exactly like this every single time. Yeah, maybe that's part of why I found it so irritating. But as soon as it showed whatever instruments he's using or the synthesizer, the the sort of like. I don't know, almost like a uh, uh, glockenspiel sounding sure. or something yeah, yeah. like it just really grated on me. Yeah, and that, that's absolutely fair. It's just it's over and over and over again. But I don't know, in, in a way, I think it's the best version of that. And so good for him. Sure. Good for him indeed. So that is American Beauty. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out on social media. You can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. I don't know if I have a website. If I do, it should be reassessed like some films in 1999. We're awesomemovieyear.com, Pod on Twitter, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for the people who have left new reviews for us, um, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, someone said that we were youthful, yeah. so uh, we'll take it. Much like Lester Burnham, we're here having midlife crises. So we'll <laughs> in our own it. ways, yes. we've been having them for a long time. Yes, indeed. So uh, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com. Not much there. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Jason, what is in our next episode? Josh, I'm nothing if not a gentleman. And as a gentleman, I must defer to Dave because it is his pick. Dave, what'd you pick? My pick is the classic office space. And can I just say, it's a great companion piece to this. It is indeed. Yeah. So uh, tune in next time for Office Space. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.